There are fears some of the world's main crops will come under immense pressure as the planet heats up. The latest findings on climate change suggest a warming planet will create additional challenges for many of the world's farmers, including those in New Zealand. Insight investigates what's being done to try to ensure everyone, everywhere, will have enough to eat. Well, you're currently getting some, some carrots at the Newtown Market. Yep. What else will you be after today? Um, potatoes, cauliflower, broccoli, apples, a few peppers, things like that. Yeah. Doing the weed shop, yeah? Weed shopping. Right, and, and what brings you here? Oh, we just like coming here and um, we find it's pretty good produce and cheap and yeah, it just fits in quite well. Simon's just one of the thousands of Wellingtonians who will be visiting the Newtown Fresh Fruit and Vegetable Market this weekend. You can get everything from avocados to yams, from fresh fish to fresh noodles here at the markets. But over the next 35 years, it's expected that the world population is going to increase by about 2 billion people. That's an extra 200,000 mouths every day that farmers around the world have to find a way of feeding. But at the same time as the population is increasing, so too are temperatures on the planet. Some believe these two forces are going to put incredible pressure on food supply. Others are doing everything they can to try and future-proof food production. I'm Benedict Collins and in this week's Insight we talk to people in New Zealand and around the world about the pressures on food and what's been done to try and ensure there's enough food in the future. Relative to its size, New Zealand has the privilege of being a significant food producer in its own right. And it helps that it doesn't have to cope with the heavy population numbers that are common in other parts of the world. In this bustling market in Taiwan in the heart of the capital, Taipei, people are busy stocking up before Chinese New Year celebrations, an event on the calendar with food at its very centre. In addition to stocking up on everything from goose throats to chicken's feet to salted duck eggs, there's a full range of fruit and vegetables for shoppers to choose from. But there are fears that it will be small-scale farmers in this region who supply such goods who will be among those hardest hit by climate change. One of those working to try and help Asian farmers future-proof their operations is the regional programme leader for the Climate Change, Agriculture and Food Security programme, Leo Sebastian. But he says there's little farmers can do to mitigate or adapt to the most ferocious aspects of a changing climate, extreme weather events. Unfortunately, in uh, Southeast Asia, there are so many... Uh, climate change challenges from uh, natural calamities, uh, typhoons, uh, to drought, to variable weather. These things are all occurring in this area. And uh, we, we can say that the people are resilient, but uh, of course, uh, as you have probably seen in, in the Philippines, there's a lot of resilience, but when typhoon Haiyan struck that area, still a lot of people suffered because... Uh, the, the intensity of some of these uh, natural calamities are becoming greater rather than uh, not, not just more frequent. The devastating aftermath of Typhoon Haiyan, or Typhoon Yolanda as the Filipino government is calling it, is rapidly turning from desperation to looting in some cities.
Several reports indicate that chaos has erupted in the almost entirely destroyed city of Tacloban. With food and water resources dwindling, many residents have pillaged stores, shopping centers, and fast food chains. Uncollected Reports such as this by the LA Times online were common in the days and weeks after Super Typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines in November last year. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization was one of the groups that stepped in to help. Its representative in the Philippines, Rahendra Ariel, described how one of the strongest tropical cyclones to ever make landfall had all but obliterated the day-to-day -day life of both farmers and fishermen. The impact of Typhoon Haiyan on the livelihood of the small farmers and uh, fisher folk was devastating. You know, more than 100,000, almost 130,000 families were affected. 600,000 hectares of land was devastated. Uh, 33 million coconut trees were affected out of that. 15 million trees were just on the ground. The impact of Haiyan on the livelihood was really, really devastating. It's events such as these and changes in weather patterns overall that have led an Australian author and scientist, Julian Cribb, to believe that climate change is one of the factors behind growing instability in food production. He argues that agriculture needs to be reinvented if it's going to be able to feed close to 10 billion people. Demand for food is going to double over the next 50 years due to population growth and economic growth combined. But at the same time, there are these big constraints that are building up. We're running into scarcities of land, water, energy, fertiliser, science and technology, fish and stable climates. All of those things are bearing down on agriculture. And what's really been happening in the last 10 years is that world food demand has been rising faster than food production. And that's why we're seeing these sudden price spikes hit in 2008 and 2010. But the world has faced predictions of overpopulation and threatened food supplies before. In the 1960s book The Population Bomb, the Californian ecologist Paul Ehrlich predicted that population growth was putting too much pressure on the Earth's natural resources and that it would all end in mass starvation. But gigantic leaps were made in agricultural output in the middle of last century through improved seed breeding and industrialised processes such as wide-scale irrigation and fertilisation. The Green Revolution meant Professor Ehrlich's predictions of mass starvation did not come to pass. But Professor Ehrlich told an audience at the National Museum, Tapapa, that food production will be seriously hampered by climate change. Uh, we have climate disruption. Again, biggest problem there, changing patterns of precipitation upon which agriculture is absolutely dependent. And we're already beginning to see climate change affecting the yields on the basic food stuff. The human feeding base uh, is fundamentally three grains, maize, rice, and wheat. Uh, and they all are showing problems where it's warming up, and the projections are that we're going to have great difficulty increasing the yields. It's an interesting thing, because that's always what the papers say, even the technical papers. How are we going to feed 2.5 billion more people by 2050? The interesting thing about that is we're not feeding 7.1 billion today. You know, there's something like almost 900 million, depending on who does the numbers, people starving today, another 2 billion that are micronutrient malnourished and in many cases blind and having little problems like that from it. Just a short stroll from Tapapa on the Wellington waterfront, I spoke to Andy Reisinger, a New Zealand climate scientist and one of the hundreds of contributing authors to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's most recent report, the fifth assessment, known as the AR5. 
Dr Reisinger says the report found that if the world aggressively reduces greenhouse gas emissions down to zero by the end of the century, warming could be limited to two degrees above pre-industrial levels. On the other hand, he says if nothing is done, the world could be looking at a four degree average increase in temperature. We have to keep in mind that typically large land areas warm more than the oceans, so if we say four and a half degrees global average warming, it means that many land areas would warm by six or more degrees locally. And of course, locally is what matters for crop production. We don't grow wheat, you know, in the ocean. So it's sometimes misleading to just talk about global averages in terms of temperature change. Dr Reisinger says one of the key findings of the most recent report is that climate change is not just a problem future generations will have to deal with. He says there's now clear evidence that temperature extremes, more frequent droughts and floods and changes in rainfall patterns are already having an impact, particularly on food. We've definitely moved past the stage where we're talking about predicted future impacts under potential climate change. We're now seeing the evidence of climate change largely still on like physical systems like dates when frozen rivers, lakes first break up, impacts on ecosystems, coral reef bleaching, change in, in fruiting in seasons for particular plants, but also more and more impacts on agriculture and food production around the world. Six years ago we had very little evidence that those systems were already being affected. Now we can say with, with you know, considerable confidence that we're really seeing impacts on wheat and maize yields around the world in the global average, and th those impacts have been negative. In some locations you've seen benefits from higher temperatures or changing rainfall patterns but if you look across the world the impact has been a negative one which means that yields have, have not grown as much as they would have grown otherwise in the absence of climate change. Tell us a bit more about that impact on yields, you know, what are we seeing? There's a range of different ways in which climate change um, interacts with crop yields. One is that some crops are sensitive to extreme daytime temperatures and as you have a you know, rising average temperature, you have a greater frequency of, of heat waves and, and very hot days. We've seen this you know, across the ditch in Australia. We had very hot days where the you know, Bureau of Meteorology in, in Australia had to extend its temperature scale just to be able to actually show how high temperatures have been getting. So those extreme high temperatures tend to have a, a, quite a strong effect on, on rice yields, wheat yields, where you simply don't, you know, where simply the, the, the crop withers and dies quite quickly. The IPCC report found that yields of key crops such as wheat and maize could fall by 2% per decade as a result of climate change. At the same time, population and economic growth mean the world needs to be producing 60 to 70% more food by 2050. And as Dr Reisinger points out, there is already a significant level of malnourishment among the world's population today. Even completely independent of climate change, we're not doing terribly well in feeding especially the most poor and vulnerable parts of our global society. But at the same time, agriculture has shown enormous potential to, to increase yields over the past few decades. And you know, it's not like absolute yields are dropping, it's just yields are dropping below what they could have been in the absence of climate change. And that sharp end of the wedge will become greater the more climate change progresses. So yes we will see increased pressure on, on food supplies but also increasing spikes following extreme events. We've already seen after major droughts, um, major hot seasons in key producing countries, spikes in global food prices which you now is unpleasant but manageable for some parts of society, typically the you know, richer end, and can be devastating in the poorer parts of society and the question is 
will we manage to balance those spikes and increasing extremes out and, and ensuring sort of an, an equitable and sustainable food supply around the world? And that's where the, where the real challenge lies. And climate change doesn't make the job easier, but definitely makes it harder. And it was the threat to food security that led the human rights organisation Oxfam to decide seven years ago to become vocal on the importance of acknowledging climate change issues. As its spokesperson Jason Garman explained in the Auckland domain near his work, Oxfam realised climate change was a threat that needed to be addressed. As Oxfam began to see more and more the communities that we work with in the developing world, the poorest and most, most vulnerable communities, were the ones and are the ones who are being impacted first and worst by climate change, and that was why we got more involved. You're talking about them suffering the worst consequences. What are those consequences? What is Oxfam you know, seeing happening around the world in the communities that you work with? Well, the obvious are more erratic weather, stronger storms, um, but what we're seeing more and more is climate change's impact on food, and it's really becoming the biggest obstacle to creating a world in which everyone has enough to eat. Oxfam's New Zealand wing does a lot of work in the Pacific, and Jason Garman says many key crops there are already under severe pressure. In the Pacific, you also have staple food crops that are under threat, but for different reasons. So, for instance, uh, taro, swamp taro, those, those crops that are in the ground close to, close to the shore are oftentimes getting polluted with salt from rising sea levels and eroding shorelines. So in places like Tuvalu, they're growing a variety called pulaka, and they, they're making a pit now, uh, and the pits are getting contaminated with salt. So the way that they're trying to adapt is by building up walls around, you know, walls of, of earth around their pulaka pits to help protect them during the king tides. The same thing is also happening in a place that I was fortunate enough to visit called the Carteret Islands, which are off of the coast of Bougainville in Papua New Guinea. And their swamp taro has been wiped out altogether. They can no longer grow it out on the islands. And similarly, they're struggling to grow bananas. And that's because they're getting polluted with salt water. If you look at a place like Kiribati, it's littered with dead coconut palm trees. There's nothing left on the top, so those coconut palms are getting polluted with salt water, but you also have drought situations where it's so dry that the coconut trees can't survive. So you've got major staple food crops that people are struggling to grow. They're traditional food crops that they've grown for thousands of years, and it's no longer consistent for them. And it's food grown in tropical parts of the world, such as the Pacific Islands, parts of Africa and Southeast Asia, particularly by small-scale farmers with few resources, that experts believe could be hardest hit by climate change. But to counter these predicted outcomes, considerable scientific research is being undertaken to try and ensure plants and livestock can cope with any change in climate. The International Federation of Organic Agricultural Movements has been working with small farmers in Africa who, too poor to afford fertiliser and pesticides, are considered organic by default. Its Australian president, Andre Loy, says they're working to show traditional farmers they can maintain their yields without expensive inputs. Instead of buying inputs, in many cases toxic inputs, we can show them how they can... Get, to get all that on farm, develop it on farm for no or little cost. So it is a much better economic model. It's uh, also very easy for them to do, they don't, you know, very simple training. And in the process of showing them how to do that, how to make composts, how to build up soil organic matter, ways of dealing with pests and diseases by bringing what we call functional biodiversity. These are plants 
that will say attract the beneficial insects, other plants that will suppress the weeds and bring in the nitrogen. We can show them this science. It's all very easy for them to do. Like we see, we can get up more than 100% increase in yields and really importantly, make them resilient. Some significant work is being done in Vietnam where the focus is on one of the world's most important staple food crops, rice. Leo Sebastian is the regional program leader for the Climate Change, Agriculture and Food Security program in Hanoi in Vietnam. He works at the International Rice Research Institute, or IRI, and he says plant breeding work is being undertaken to help rice cope with changes in sea and salt levels. IRI has been working a lot of, uh, on this uh, saline tolerant rice, and uh, there have been a lot of testing done in the Mekong area to see how they are adapted to the increasing salinity in the Mekong Delta that is due to uh, in water intrusion from the sea. So there are now rice varieties that are being uh, that been that have been introduced in Vietnam and that are being tested. Also, new ones being tested further that are more adapted to saline condition. So even though the water the the water may be saline, the rice can still grow well. And in other parts of Vietnam, there, there are also rice varieties that are being tested that are drought tolerant. And there are also varieties that are being tested that are flood tolerant. So there is this uh, so-called submarine rice that is now being promoted also where it can tolerate flooding for up to 14 days. Rice is also a substantial emitter of methane, a significant greenhouse gas. And Leo Sebastian says they're trying to convince farmers their rice paddies don't need to be continually flooded to grow rice. He says letting the ground dry out substantially reduces methane emissions. The alternate wetting and drying. So you don't have to have that rice field flooded all the time. You can have it dry at a certain point, you water it, then uh, you let it, you dry it, not dry, but you remove the water so the, the soil is able to breathe, wet it again when necessary, and then so it's alternating, wetting and drying. Now, this one actually reduces the methane emissions substantially. So this is what uh, we are now trying to promote among farmers. But there are challenges because uh, still uh, the concept is that rice should always have water in the field and the farmers also are worried that if they don't maintain certain level of water in the field they are also uncertain when the rain will come or when the water will be available. In Hoi An in central Vietnam, rice farmer Ni Ho is ploughing his paddies with his water buffalo. He runs an average smallholder sized rice farm of just a couple of hectares and it's been in his family for 120 years. Through an interpreter, Mr. Nee said the unusual temperature extremes he had witnessed in the last few years were no good for growing rice. Weather is sometimes really, really hot, but sometimes really, really cold. It's really hard for rice to grow like this. Unpredictable. You are like, don't cho năng suất nhiều.
the uh, harvest and the money I got. With two harvests a year, the farm employs three family members and produces enough rice to feed the immediate family. And in good years, a little extra goes to market. Before the rice makes it to market, it's delivered, normally on the back of a bicycle, in large sacks to a nearby and very basic processing facility. Here, the rice is fed through machinery that dehusks the rice and cleans it of dirt and any other imperfections. Mr Nee says the price he gets for his rice at market hardly makes it worth the effort. He gets the equivalent of 50 New Zealand cents for a 50 kilo bag. In addition to growing rice, many farmers in the area supplement their incomes by farming geese or ducks, or in Mr Nee's case, opening a small part of his farm to show tourists how rice farming works. It's small farms like Mr Nee's that produce 80% of the food that's grown in Asia and Africa, according to the Food and Agriculture Organisation. Whether you're shopping at the Newtown Market in Wellington or here in a heaving market in Taipei, it can be easy to forget about the journey food takes before it gets to sale. Here I can buy a wide range of fruit and vegetables from across the country and throughout the world. But about a third of food that is grown never makes it this far and goes to waste. Several hours south of Taipei is the World Vegetable Centre in Tainan City, another organisation working on the front lines of food production in the developing world. By the water gardens where crops are grown and seeds renewed, the centre's head of information, Maureen Mokosi, explains that just getting their produce to market can be a huge headache for poor farmers. That's such a critical issue in so many countries because it's very common that a farmer will end up leaving almost 40% of his crop in the field simply because they don't have the means to get that harvest to the market or once they get it there they've got no place to store it and protect it. So quite a bit is lost and it's uh, unfortunate because uh, obviously there are many more people we need to feed. Agriculture is going to have to be conducted in a much more intensive way but if we could protect the harvest that we've got now, we wouldn't have to intensify agriculture quite so much. So post-harvest issues are very critical. Uh, and sometimes it can be just simple things like um, harvesting in the early morning or once, uh, for instance, a tomato crop is harvested, moving it out of the sun and uh, storing it in the shade um, or not uh, piling all your uh, sweet peppers or chili peppers into a big tall sack where the ones at the bottom get crushed. Maybe putting them more into flat trays make it a little bit easier um, on the fruit. Um, I know sometimes it's hard uh, transportation-wise. A farmer might only have a bicycle or perhaps a motor scooter and they need to pack as much as they possibly can and get it to market at once. But if they can protect their crops and store them for a little bit longer, for instance, uh, by using a simple evaporative cooler that can be made from bricks and sand, then they can store that crop and maybe bring it over the course of a few days rather than all at once um, and gives them more options for generating more income, having better sales over a period of time. Maureen Mokosi took me on a tour of the World Vegetable Centre's enormous seed bank where the largest public collection of vegetable seeds in the world are kept in a highly secure and controlled environment. So, um, 
This is our gene bank, where yep. we have more than 60,000 accessions of different types of vegetables. It's the world's largest public sector collection of vegetable germplasm. And we have uh, very large collections of tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, also of mung bean, which is a very important crop for Asia, and one that might have applications in other places as well. So this is our very long-term cold storage. Yep. Uh, we don't uh, go into these very often, only when we absolutely have to. Um, it is cold, and it, this is where we're going to be keeping seeds for the very long term, 50 to 100 years, seed is stored here. We have this very large collection of vegetable seed, and it's important because breeders around the world have to develop new vegetable varieties for farmers as the climate is changing as they encounter different pests and diseases the old varieties they may have been planting for 20 or 30 years may not grow so well anymore they may be susceptible to diseases or pests they may not do well as the climate gets hotter or drier or wetter depending on where you're at so we need to have a very large base of vegetable germplasm of those genes, so breeders can try different plants in their breeding programs, try to make different combinations, try to come up with those improved vegetables that will do well under some very difficult and changing conditions. She says the World Vegetable Centre regards climate change as a significant threat to farmers and food production. Well, we take it very seriously. We think it's a serious problem for farmers, something that's going to be challenging them in the years to come and even now. So we're doing a lot of work on heat tolerance in the crops that we work on, trying to develop lines that have good heat tolerance, tolerance for drought and other kinds of environmental stress because we know farmers are going to be facing those issues and we want to be able to help them. Now, our gene bank represents about oh, about 435 species of vegetables. And that's really important because it means that we can find a crop that can do well in just about any agroclimatic condition you would find. So whether it's an area plagued by drought or you're in a highland where it's perhaps more humid and cooler, we've got a crop that can do well there. And are you seeing the impacts of climate change already on you know with farmers around the world? I, very much so. It's, things seem to be getting more unpredictable, harsher. They're facing harsher uh, issues, harsher floods, harsher droughts. They're going on for longer periods of time. They're more extreme. And some, like Dr Reisinger, believe international inaction means it may not be possible to limit warming to two degrees above the pre-industrial level benchmark. Sometimes there's a somewhat unhelpful conception that we have to limit warming to two degrees or otherwise give up all hope and all hell breaks loose. Whereas I think it's really important to realise that two degrees is becoming an increasingly sort of iffy target in the sense that we're just not making enough progress to get there. We can still get there, but it's going to be very, very hard to achieve. But even two and a half degrees would be a heck of a lot better than four degrees. Scientists and farmers working on the front line face an enormous task to come up with solutions to make sure it is possible to feed an ever-increasing number of people in a less predictable climate. It might well take another agricultural revolution, and possibly an even greener one, if everyone is to have enough to eat in years to come. I'm Benedict Collins, and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. 
I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Steve Burridge.